one single residential school was ever built with a playground, but every single residential school had ample space for a cemetery. You're listening to episode 54 of the National Secular Society podcast, produced by Emma Pug. I will be looking at Canada's residential schools for Indigenous children and the role of the Catholic Church in running them. This episode contains some distressing material. In 1879, Nicholas Flood Davin, a lawyer, journalist and politician, was asked by the Canadian government to investigate so-called Indian education in the USA. Davin published the results of his investigations in a report entitled On Industrial Schools for Indians and Half-Breeds. He recommended the establishment of boarding schools to take Indigenous children away from the influence of their communities and supposedly civilise them. Influenced by Devon's report, the Canadian government established several residential schools. The system lasted for over 100 years until the last school was closed in 1998. Many schools were run on a day-to-day basis by the Catholic Church, which was involved in the forced removal of children from their families and in bringing them up under extremely harsh conditions. It has taken Canadians a long time to come to terms with this aspect of their country's past, which still casts a shadow of Indigenous communities today. The survivors of the schools have also long kept silent about their experiences out of fear of stigmatisation. But in the last two decades, they have started to speak out. Their stories do not reflect well either on the state or on the religious organisations involved, above all the Catholic Church. Despite this, the Pope has still refused to make an official apology. I'm joined now by Kerry Benjo. Kerry is a journalist from Red Regina, Saskatchewan. Earlier this year, she was hired as the first Indigenous storyteller at CBC, Canada's public broadcaster. Kerry, you attended a residential school yourself, and you were the fourth generation in your family to do so. First of all, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Why did you attend a residential school? And how did you come from these beginnings to your present profession in journalism? I didn't go as a child. Um, I attended because I needed to obtain my high school education. And on reserve, there was no high school offered. So the only options for me at the time, well, the only option was to leave my community. It was either find transportation into the nearest urban setting, which would have been Regina, or attend residential school. At this time, I was the youngest of eight and my dad had recently passed. And my mother was the caregiver of our family. And so my dad took care of a lot of the business aspects of the family. And my mom never learned to drive. And so that created a real barrier for her. And so the only option left was residential school. What was it like being at a residential school when you were there? It was very regimented. The best I can equate it to is living in an institution. There was a lot of rules. There was a very set schedule. There were times that we were required to get up. There was time scheduled for when we could wash. There was dinner times were set at a very specific time. There were chores. There was school time. There was study and our free time. And so it was... We were always supervised. There was always somebody there to make sure that we followed this schedule. And um, it's very different from growing up in a family. I went from living with my mom who made me breakfast every day to 
living in a dorm with strangers and having a stranger, you know, come into the our dorm, tell us, get up, breakfast time, and going to line up to get lunch so that there was a lot of coldness there. There wasn't that family feeling. What was the name of your school and who was it run by? The Quapel Indian Residential School. Um, that was the school, that was the name of it when I attended. And at the time, the First Nation, the Star Blanket Cree Nation, was in the process of taking it over. So I, w- I attended at the very early stages of that um, transition. So when I went, the church was already removed from the school. So I didn't have to attend church like my parents um, were required. To what extent during your journalist career have you um, covered stories about First Nation and other Indigenous communities? Well, I started off my journalism career as a freelancer. And then that led me into a full-time permanent position at the Regina Leader Post, which is a part of the Post Media uh, newspaper chain. And when I started there back in 2006, I was the first Indigenous reporter hired full-time in the paper's 123-year history. I realized that I was in a very unique position that I was, I had the opportunity to finally amplify the voices of Indigenous people. And so while I was there, I made it a point to seek out and tell stories from Indigenous people and from their perspective, as well as to provide some historical context within my stories, just to give people the readership, a broader understanding of Indigenous people and try to bridge that gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people because you have to remember for more than a century, Indigenous people operated completely separate from the rest of society here in Canada. Like our experiences are completely different from the average Canadian and for generations, our voice has never made it into mainstream media. It We only made it in when maybe there was a protest. It was either a crime committed, you would see an Indigenous person, a court case or something like that. Or if they're dancing powwow, um, you would see photos of it. And so the perception of Indigenous people was very limited. We were either dancing or we were dangerous. Now, you're the fourth generation um, in your family and and you and your ancestors, your your immediate, your parents and grandparents and so forth, went to the same residential school in Saskatchewan. What were your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents' experiences of this school? You have to remember that the experience from generations before me were extreme. They were violent. They were traumatic. They are, they're not common stories 
What was the earliest story you know about um, in your family? My dad used to tell the story about, and he used it sort of like a pep talk, you know, like to encourage us to to keep practicing and to keep going and to reach our full potential. And he always told it with such pride. And he talked about being in school and um, running up and down the hills during um, break time because he attended the Labrette. And at the time, education was, wasn't a big focus. It was, the school was designed primarily to train um, these children to take on manual labor jobs, like to provide cheap labor for non-Indigenous people and um, businesses. And this school was run by the Catholic Church? Yeah. And so part of his classes is he was, he was working in the farm. Part of the school had an area where they had a dairy teaching them how to care for animals and that sort of thing. And he said he he ran up, up and down the hills every day during break. And he did that constantly for months. He said he ran in the winter. He ran in the snow. He ran in the spring when it was muddy. And then my mom had mentioned that my dad was bald. And um, I guess one spring day, sometime in May, because school was still going on, he said that that day he did his routine. He had done it so much that the supervisors at the time grew accustomed to him doing this every day, running up and down the hill and coming back, running up and coming back, running down and coming, running up and coming back. And so one day he knew it was the right time. And he said, and he laughed about it. He said, he remembers that first break. Um, he said he ran up the hill and he looked back and like the supervisor and the boys and all that were, were down there. He said, and then I, I took off and I just kept running. And by the time they realized that my dad was running again, um, they sent the senior boys to chase him. And my dad had conditioned himself through those months of running up and down that hill. Um, he built up his stamina and his strength uh, that he ran so fast and he ran so far, the senior boys couldn't catch him. So the senior boys ran and they got the horses, but my dad was smart and he didn't go home because the previous times he, he ran away, he went home. But this time he didn't go home. Instead he hid and he didn't talk about where he slept or anything like that. But the next day he went and found work at a local um, farm. He lied about his age, said he was 15 because at the time, if you're 15, you can, you could work. And so that's what he did. He made his way as a farmhand working for different um, non-Indigenous farmers. And he didn't go home until like late in the year when harvest was over. What an amazing story. Why did your father want to escape so much? What was it like for him at this, at this school? Obviously, my dad experienced probably the horrors of residential school. I can only take a guess as to what it was like and how traumatic it must have been for him. 
to keep doing this because he was a chronic runner and he ran away so much that his final year uh, at the school, he was bald. He had to spend the entire, almost the entire school year bald because he kept running away. And what they would do was they would publicly humiliate these children. It didn't matter um, what gender they were, but they would take these children and use them as an example. They would beat them in front of the other children to show them what would happen if they disobeyed the rules. And my dad's hair was shaved um, in front of all the, uh, all the rest of the children to make an example of him. But for some reason, he wanted out of that place so bad that he risked that every time he ran away. And he knew he would be beaten. He knew he'd be shamed. He knew he would be humiliated. So I can only take a guess as to the experiences that that made a 12-year-old boy continuously try to escape. What else is known about what these schools were like? What else have you found out in your own research and from talking to other people? I've heard so many stories. I carry so many stories from the survivors because I've covered this topic numerous times and I've talked to many survivors and you have to remember that a lot of people, the only way they've been able to cope with their past is by by quelching all that down and not revisiting it because it's too painful. It makes me sad to hear of the what so many children had to endure. You have to remember that at the time, these schools, they were basically elementary schools. They're, they're, they took children as young as four years old. And if the parents didn't want to send them, they were taken by force, by the RCMP. And there was Indian agents on these reserves. So they knew which families had children. So parents couldn't hide their children. In the far north where there was a lot of forest, there were stories, there are stories of parents escaping with their children into the forest and, you know, hiding and being able to prevent their children from from being taken. I can share a story with you about my mom's experience. She went to residential school when she's around when she was around five. She was raised, she was the eldest in her family. She was very well cared for, very well loved, cherished. And she spent a lot of time with her grandparents and she never went without. She doesn't remember ever going hungry or having a lack of attention, having a lack of, of, of care because, you know, she, she was surrounded by adults who, who loved and cherished her. She was taken from that environment and placed in a residential school where she wasn't allowed to have her own belongings. She couldn't have a doll. She couldn't have things from home. They were given uniforms. Everybody was given the same uniform, the same haircut, the same treatment. They weren't allowed any reminders of home. And so children that were sent with things maybe that they valued and took with them. They were taken away when they entered those schools and they were given nothing. These schools 
didn't have playgrounds. They didn't have anything that you would expect uh, a place that housed children to have. There was no toys. My mom talked about being a little girl and, you know, the, and going to chapel. Um, they went to chapel every day and chapel was church. They had to go to chapel in the morning. And she said they were, her and a group of girls were, were cleaning. And I don't know, I think they were cleaning the stairs in the chapel and the piano was there and being little children, they were curious. And so they, they snuck up and they, they tapped the keys on the piano and they ran away because, you know, the piano is loud and they knew that they would be punished if they were caught even like touching that. But, you know, she, when she told it to me, she had such, you know, glee in her face because she remembers that one moment in time when, you know, she was allowed to be a child and play. And that really strikes me because we have to remember that these children were required to work. They were required to attend church, do their prayer. Um, they talked about always praying and doing and learning catechism and um, attending mass and like daily. Like I talked to a survivor who's, who talked about she had was excited to go to school because she thought she was going to learn. She thought she was going to, you know, learn about the world, like things she heard on the radio. But no, she didn't learn anything. And she said the only thing she learned was catechism and how to clean. And so these children weren't there to get an education, although they said school. These weren't schools. They were institutions that were created to just erase identity and pump out um, a cheap source of labor for, for other people, for non-Indigenous people. They weren't expected to make a living for themselves. They weren't, the expectations were very low. Um, they were just seen as um, a commodity. And not one single residential school was ever built with a playground, but every single residential school had ample space for a cemetery. Talking of, of cemeteries, just recently there, there was, of course, the, the new discovery of graves, of the, the 215 um, unmarked graves. These weren't the first to have been discovered, um, but what, what light does the discovery of these um, new graves shed on the residential schools? Ironically, this is not a new story for Indigenous people. We've known about this these stories of children going missing, these stories of survivors being forced to dig graves and bury their, their fellow students are common. If you went and listened to any of the records that were kept, any of the, there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and they traveled throughout Canada gathering survivor stories. And survivors talked about this. They talked about people that went missing. My dad's uncle talked about how his sister went missing. Um, he attended the Labrat school, the school I went to. 
his sister was in school at the same time as him and she went missing. He doesn't know what happened to her. He doesn't know where she went. So we have people that that know of children that died. Some of them witnessed children being beaten to death in front of them. I have my Cree teacher when I was an elementary school student, she had talked about this one girl who wet the bed one night. She said because it was so cold and the reason she remembers it is because they got marched out and she said they were standing on the the cold floor and the nun took this girl and she was making an example of her. She was ridiculing her in front of the ch- other children and she took one of the pokers for the fire and she beat this girl with it and she beat her till that girl wasn't moving and she said and then they told them to get ready and so you know the the kids had just witnessed one of the students be beaten unconscious and so they they hurried up and did what they're doing and they went off and they went went to church and and she said that girl's bed was empty and she never came back she she doesn't know what happened to her things like that those those are common stories that a lot of survivors witnessed children just disappearing in the night they going to bed and waking up and their bed is empty just these disappearances and there's people to there's survivors who talked about you know in the middle of winter having to dig um holes in in the middle of the night and you know, being cold and digging these holes and just not knowing why they're digging the holes. I think they knew why they're digging the holes. So we have people that have always told these stories of of these children that are buried there. They're somewhere there. And so these carry these stories have been carried forward. And they were documented and they were shared with the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And when the final report from the Truth and Reconciliation Committee was submitted, one of the things requested was money to survey all these schools, locate these graves and do what was right, you know, recognize these children and allow people to have that closure, allow people to grieve for them because they weren't allowed that opportunity. But for some reason, the amount that was requested, I think it was around $3 million, it was denied. And this is by the Canadian government? The Canadian government denied it. They didn't want to do it. And so a lot of communities, um, like in Kamloops, the community decided to look, they invested the money, they are the ones that are looking and trying to locate these cemeteries that they know are there, these grave sites that they know are there and locate grave grave sites that they aren't aware of. Like this happened in Brandon as well, Brandon, Manitoba, there was a number of um, um, grave sites that were, that people knew they were there 
but no one listened when they they said you know you can't build there there's cemetery there there's people there there's there's children that are buried there because it was near the site of an old residential school and so they've been ignored like indigenous people have been saying that these things are there but no one was listening and it wasn't until Kamloops and that was this year yeah that was in June that was the 215 Kaos first nation located here in Saskatchewan it's about 45 minutes outside of Regina there was a residential school there called the Maryville Indian Residential School and people knew there was a cemetery there um, they weren't sure of how big it was or who was all there because when the school closed down and the whatever headstones or whatever were removed by by the Catholic Church. So although there was at one time recognition that was the cemetery, the headstones were removed and so the reserve, the community had to do their own investigation and and try to locate where these graves are. Is, is it known why the Catholic Church removed the gravestones? Because they were leaving the reserve and they probably thought that was their property, so they took it. What has the Catholic Church done in Canada to, to acknowledge the role that it played in these schools, but both as a whole and individual institutions within individual churches? The individual churches and the, the Catholic Church as an institution have reacted um, very differently. The institution itself has has drugged their feet on acknowledging their role and their part they played in in the destruction of indigenous communities, indigenous families. They had committed to fundraising and providing uh, a financial support for Indian residential school survivors. And they agreed that they would pay $25 million and they didn't. I think they came up with $3 million, said they were not able to raise um, the 20, $25 million that they, they agreed to. And so the court said, okay, fine, that's okay. Canada has made attempts to get the Catholic Church, primarily the Pope, to issue an apology or recognize their part and their role they played in in the destruction of Indigenous families and in the destruction of Indigenous people here in Canada. And they've chose not to. But when it comes to individual churches, individual um, people here in, in Saskatchewan, their attitude is different. Although many of the the ones that are here now had no knowledge of these schools, they didn't partake in these schools. They are recognizing the role the Catholic Church played in these places, and a lot of individual churches are reaching out and showing support and trying to build those bridges and recognizing the wrongdoing that happened, but they're doing it individually. For you, Kerry, what, what would you like to see the Catholic Church doing as a whole to um, to help sort of bring about truth and reconciliation? 
I think there was, there have been a lot of things done, a lot of things that have been asked of the Catholic Church as an institution, and they've failed. And for me, I'm only speaking for me, I'm tired. I'm tired of asking if they aren't willing to even recognize the wrong, then saying I so saying I'm sorry now, having the Pope come out and say I'm sorry, it it really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't erase more than a hundred years of history. And what is I'm sorry gonna do? I'd rather see some concrete results. A lot of reserves here in Canada are still living below the poverty line. They don't have access to clean water. They have inadequate housing. The infrastructure is pitiful at best. Food security is an issue. Education is still an issue. There's a lot of communities that still have to send their children away to get an education. And this is just basic education, K to 12. Most reserves don't have that. That's so sad that that still exists. And until those things are rectified, unless the Catholic Church is willing to, you know, support change and bring up the standard of living on reserves to that of municipalities and their non their non-indigenous counterparts, then I don't want to hear I'm sorry. Carrie Pencho. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. It's been a really, really moving interview. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. All right. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society. All rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.